Hello and welcome to this edition of Engaged Podcast. I'm Simon. And I'm Tony. And, well, we're going to get an elephant out of the room straight away because, my God, we're back to where we've been, where we have it every year, where I've, I've already done this already, I've already put my hands up to Jamie, we've already tried to record this once over, we've already spent, what, an hour and a quarter, or an hour, hour and, and a half, half yeah. something like that, recording this, and um, it didn't record it, it played back uh, what we think was probably... What was it? What did you want it to be called? The Falcon and, and the Wind Soldier or Falcon and Wind Falcon Soldier? Falcon Winter it, Soldier, yeah. Cause it, it played that recording back because um, Simon got confused. Again. Yeah, we were going to split this into two parts and then we'd finish part one and then when it had finished, it was playing about 36 minutes. And I said to Simon, that's not right. It was longer. We spoke for longer than 36 minutes. So, um, we're doing what we usually do. We're kind of... Um, kind of take it on the chin and going back to the start a little bit of bridge we're not going to do as much as what you didn't hear and what we sat in our, in Jamie's room talking to, effectively to ourselves about which was lovely and all but yeah. we would have liked to have you to heard it yeah. uh, we are doing oh my god what, did I, what is this called again <laughs> the Star Trek TNG Technical Memos by Nicole Barr by Rick Sternmeck that I brought all the way back in 20, 2011 for £86, £3, um, the conversion rate at the time, which actually was fairly decent, detail I didn't go into last time. Um, and I'm going to get it, once again, get Jamie to read out the blurb that was on eBay from yes. uh, Rick Stern back himself. I'm getting a sense of deja vu here. <laughs> um, because it's wordy and I will... Yeah. Um, it's a very long and heavy history of the development of modern Star Trek tech covering impulse and warp propulsion phases, the transporter, astronomical phenomena, alien biology and much, much more. Um, the early discussions have inevitably led to the creation of the TNG technical manual published by Pocket Books in 1991. Um, and from the initial cover sheet it says, this is a collection of some 600 plus pages of technical memos written for the benefit of TNG writers producers and visual effects personnel over the seven years of the show. We strove to inject a bit of plausible science and technology, either real or well-known in the here and now, or extrapolate for the 23rd, 24th, or even 29th centuries, and perhaps beyond. We hope we make some, made some sense of it all and gave folks something new and interesting to contemplate for the future as we head out into the solar system with any luck of the galaxy. We never wanted to step on the drama or give the actors mouthfuls of incomprehensible technology terminology. We did want our heroes and the cultures they encountered to sound as if they were familiar with the concepts. Um, not everything in these pages made it onto the screen, of course, so there's a good deal of exploratory, explanatory text that you can dive into. A few of the memos may be out of place, chronologically or incomplete, or in some cases repeated. But all of the bits that can be found are here. Enjoy. Um, this photocopy set also contains a number of sketches and diagrams related to the text. Um, this one of a kind book was assembled by and is from the collection of your seller TNG and Voyager senior illustrator Rick Sturback. Cover and graphic interior first page are signed in gold. Yes, thank you, Jamie. That's all right. Uh, clear reading. Uh, pin update. I am wearing uh, a Riker pin from Fansets, one of the earliest ones that I got given. And yeah, I thought about time to wear it. Um, both of us, I gave us roughly about two and a half weeks to look through it. So I, I looked through it, put page markers down for all the things that was interest to me, and then 
I gave it to Jamie two and a half weeks after I'd done yep. with it and Jamie got the same time and he did the same with it and we're just going to go through it in the Chronos Quarter and whatever we chose and whatever yeah, happens and just crack on there was additional stuff we picked which we were going to briefly mention but in the interest of kind of just trying to save a bit of time we're going to not do that so we're just going to pick the main 1920 stuff we picked and we're just going to do it all in one episode so this will probably be a bit of a bumper length episode kind of season review lengths kind of like part one kind of lengths I suppose like a couple of hours maybe so just bear that in mind and yeah we're just gonna crack, crack straight on with it so um, right so the very first one that I picked um, was a technical commentary from the battle um, so this is talking about um, kind of the scenarios of how things are going to go in relation to kind of um, like uh so they talk about like, light speed weapons like phasers uh, require defensive me- measures that are activated automatically. This is similar to the lesson we should now know, know, should now have learned from the attack on the USS Stark. In that case, had there been proper system, had there, God, had the proper systems been on automatic, the exosets would have been blasted by the phalanx gun. So far, so good. I can even buy a bit of the interference from the energetic effects around a to black hole and then it kind of goes to talk about a uh, meteorite damage uh, they said they can't buy that because a me- uh, and a meteoroid is the word you need um this this is what i also quite like again it's it's kind of what you were saying to me injecting that bit of real science so um no starship operates under 100 percent oxygen atmosphere we learned that all the way back to apollo one which, which, you, which you mentioned to me obviously was um, was it 19 early 60s I don't know what it's early 60s it's, it was the first Apollo test and three astronauts passed away yeah uh, because they filled the capsule with 100% oxygen and they unfortunately burnt to death yeah which is really sad but I said again that's that whole reference into real life stuff which they base it on um they also talk about um Let's see. They also talk a bit about um, the Picard manoeuvre as well. Um, so way back when the Picard manoeuvre was first used, it probably w- worked because there was a lag time in sensing a new position of the stargazer. Many of the sensors on Starfleet vessels operate in subspace, so no one can see things moving at superlight speed. But superlight is still not instantaneous, so given the proper geometry, the Ferengi ship would not have registered the warp move for a picosecond or two. Um, enough to make the Picard manoeuvre work. One possible defence, I'll bet a long shot, I'll bet a long shot, is to pop about randomly in order to confuse the attacker's nav system, sort of a reverse Picard. This is very much an energy intensive trick and isn't recommended. In the years since the Picard manoeuvre was discovered, Starfleet had probably researched the hell out of it with war games. That dense, density bit may not have occurred to him, I don't know. So, yeah, I just... It's just all that kind of stuff. Like I just find it interesting that you know the amount of detail they go into to try and work things out. So and whether it would make sense, like if it would, if it if the concept actually works and would actually make sense with what they're trying to go for. So yeah, you'll find that techno babble pages is quite a strong thread throughout it because I think we've all we've both chosen quite a few of them varying yeah, degrees. I've picked of... about three or out of the twenty, I've picked about three or four technical commentaries. And I think we've both picked kind of a bit of a techno babbly kind of memo or whatever it is. So, uh, but yeah, um, the next one is again from mine. 
and this one is the organ organism talk with Dr. Bogus Stern Packet. Um, it's the first bit I love. He goes, "Hello and welcome to the show. Today our topic is worms, but not the kind you stick on a hook for fishing. No, sir. The worms we're going to examine will crawl around inside you and eat various parts of your guts, and then, as if that weren't enough, rewire your brain for their own purposes. Pretty, pretty ecky." if you ask me and yeah i just want to apologize in advance if anyone is eating whilst well they're listening to this I'm, i do apologize but yeah <laughs> that goes too much detail basically i think it's inspired from a conspiracy i think that's kind of what they were what it's talking well, it's about pro- it was for i think yeah so um and the worm in question is called a squirmus disgustingus so it talks about a bit about the worm's life cycle how it kind of invades the human host um and all that kind of thing um uh and i'll just read this little bit here because it's good so he goes how do you get rid of these little nasties not easily to be sure normally when one tries to get rid of a parasitic organism drugs are used which will kill the parasite without killing the host a transporter biofilter would not catch this one since the organism's molecular structure would not have been programmed into the biofilter's computer recognition system, which yeah makes sense. If you've got if you've got something that could prove never encountered, well, the biosystem feel is not going to be able to filter it out because it's not aware of it. So yeah, makes makes sense. So yeah, just a bit of worm talk because why not? <laughs> uh, next one I think is okay. I think there's another one of mine. Blimey. Um, oh no, no, it's not that one. Go on, Jay. No, it's fine. Go on. Talk. Um, okay, one of the other things I picked, which was a side thing, was about the holodeck. So, how the holodeck basically works. You seem to really interest you in this one, so talk. All right, I'll, okay, we'll make this an exception, but that's it. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, um, so Rick Stern back here, it's from him, the 24th of February 1887, Holodeck Ops. 1987, I think you said 1887. 1987, thank you. The accompanying text offers a possible technical description of the operation of the Holodeck, the exact space volume requirements for personal and multi-personal hollow areas will be addressed at the moment the discussion here has been limited to general operation and possible ways of showing a hollow area in use. If, for example, we wanted to enter a simulated forest, we could go out on location with an entry arch, uh, which might appear like a natural feature of a nicely sculptured structural form, and blue doors to mat out. Once the doors were closed, the only sign of reality would be the arch, and with a little effort, one could believe we're in a real outdoor setting. One didn't feel that travelling the holodeck should be confined to a few hundred feet. If you want to take a two-mile hike through their national park or some alien world, we have the 24th century technology to do it. So it goes into a bit, of, goes into a bit of detail about kind of the mechanisms of the holodeck and all that kind of stuff. It's it's, it's interesting, um, but it just goes to show you kind of how much thought went into what they were doing, what they were talking about. Like they really had to go into depth when they were coming up with these concepts and how everything would work out. So yeah, right, let's go to your first, <laughs> your proper first one. Well, my one is a memo with a rough calculation for the era for the Enterprise Day, uh, dated uh, 26th of February 1987. And yeah, this was confusing last time we did it. Um, There's a few calculations here, isn't there? According yeah. to a rough calculation of era for each deck of the ship, I've been able to get the following numbers. Um, source approximately 11.5 million feet squared, yes. 
raw deck space, which works out to seven and a half million feet squared usable deck space, which is 66%. Uh, assuming there's eight foot of ceiling. ceiling, we get six, uh, 60,720,000 yeah. feet cubed. Cubed, yeah, yeah. of people accessible volume. Uh, engineering, it's a uh, 1.25 million square footage raw deck space which is 825,000 square footage usable deck space which is again a 66% assuming 8 foot ceiling we get 6.6 million foot cubed of people accessible volume regardless of the pub size figure of 900 plus crew if we assumed a total of um, complement of 6,500 5,000 plus 1,500 contingency. This will give us each person around 9,300 9, foot cubed of volume or about 1,200 foot squared. squared of deck space. This is quite a lot of square feet. Uh, even if we assume that each person only gets half of that uh, for living. Uh, living quarters, it still works out to be about 24 by 24 per person a single technician would have a fine cabin and a family would have um, just about the same space as in a house I would imagine that if the enterprise were called into evac duty it might be able to take on 10,000 additional people um, before straining its services in the ha habitat space now the transports would be another matter it's a nice insight it's just kind of how big it is and I would recommend checking out EC Henry on YouTube he did a video on this sort of stats mm. so I'd go and check that out because it would it explain it better in some ways and I think you did a really good job bringing that outside it's to say it's a lot it's a mouthful it's a complicated maths calculations <laughs> maths was never our forte was it it's so. just how huge it yeah. is and you look at I remember back in the day Google Earth mm. it used to be like a programme you could download a special thing where you could download Enterprise D. Oh, I think I showed you back in the day. Mm. And you could have it where it had like, the blueprints in space and it was always massive and you mm. could like pull out decks and decks. And I also thought that was quite cool. Um, so my next one is basic tricord operation preliminary notes for Rickster Baxter Street Art Department, the 19th of March, uh, 1987. So basically this just gives an overview of basically all the different kind of... Um, functions functions yeah so i'll just okay i'll just read uh, just a, a couple of these out um so begin the upper left you have power standby so obviously when it's not being used it goes into low power i think if a charcoal is not used for more than 10 minutes it goes into low power mode which i didn't again i didn't actually know that but well, it was equivalent standby isn't it yeah yeah but you gotta bear in mind these as early days of computing so yeah not everyone's going to be aware of standby mode, but these days it's... Which would make sense. I mean, the thing is, would a tricord need to be charged or anything like that? Or Yeah, I think they do have um, charging ports and whatnot. Oh, okay. Uh, you wonder. Um, then you've got, obviously, F1, F2, control function, select switch. Many buttons on the tricord have more than one function. So it alternates between different functions. I and E, these are two sensory controls. That's the thing with Starfleet. They do rely on batteries they just don't ever talk about it like because you see with like phasers they do have batteries and i think yeah. with they do have batteries but 
don't see it again you don't see it because it's a bit boring like (laughs) i know it's going to be a weird comparison but it's like it's that comparison of kind of going to the laboratory you never see an actual well yeah you know they don't you just never see it obviously but you you well that was i think jim rockbury's tendency you don't see anyone going to the toilet they do exist there's a head on enterprise d bridge there's one in (laughs) star trek five yeah but you just never see it it's kind of the equivalent of that um so I and E, these are two sensory controls, internal and external, so whether it can sense, sense information from within itself, a tricorder itself, or a remote device. Um, That's when it's like linked to starships or whatnot. Mm. So you've got a display screen, which obviously will display like diagrams or videos. Um, device input, three buttons labelled GEO, M, MET, and BIO. So select between external sensing devices. Um there's three small lights to the right of the button indicate which devices are active. Um, you've got comm transmissions, so obviously they can receive, try the tricorder can receive and transmit da- data. Um, let's see, and you've also got, like, um, you can record image record as well, an ID. So this touchpad may be used to personalize a tricorder for default power up settings or as a security device for some one person only operation. Which again would make sense. You you want to keep all your data secure, where you got to have an ID thing, haven't you? So, and then on the next page, just a quick. Um, this is a diagram just explaining visually what the, what the layout of the tricorder really. So, yeah, that thought was pretty cool. <laughs> right, next one is a bit of a jump in the binder. So my second one is two pages on season one Starship models. So then, trying to work out how to, how many models to, to create effectively, mm. and it's kind of looking at the briefs on, of our stories. It is evident there are not only a lot of starship shows, Earthship shows, but that we need to. Oh God, we'll be in need of a number of models. I saw a memo from Robert J on the battle saying we cannot afford a friendly ship as well as. Stargaze, unfortunately, we need both to make the battle work. Fortunately, we also have the last outpost, which calls for the Fringy ship. I'm recommending that um, the outpost deal only with one Fringy vessel, not two. So that's very interesting. Them trying to work out desperately how to it saved money, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. Because I think you said, I think it's like they had it in the last outpost that Fringy Fringy chip so it's like well they can just reuse that so and they can now cause for a research vessel the Tarkovsky this might be a redress of the Copernicus to be used in Blood and Fire now Blood and Fire is um, an episode draft uh, written by David Drew initially for the Star Trek Next Gen but instead developed into a novel and later filmed for the fan series Star Trek New Voyages also called uh, Blood and Ice so I thought that was interesting and then it goes on to the next page which is three days later actually detail I didn't mention last time I don't think you did but go on um, where I think they just carry on saying you know um, you can just carry on the discussion just kind of we can't have everything we've got to be careful for our money because it's 30 days of Show and they yeah, I think it. I think it kind of blur, It kind of comes into what my next one is because it does mention about the idea of the Ferengi. So it kind of blurs into the next one. But 
You, do you want to read anything out for uh, that? At any rate, the Fringe should be no less sophisticated than the Federation, no less equipped than the Enterprise, although given their emotional charge and their almighty Fringe buck, whatever name done in an economical fashion, no less intimidating than style, force and presence of the Enterprise. Do you agree? Given the notion, such a nation will be around a long while. I'd imagine these particular models will see a lot of use and also give birth to a whole new and lucrative generation of merchandising items for Paramount to profit from an intro-friendly tradition. So, yeah, it's a bit ironic with that, because they barely used it. Yeah. So my my next one is obviously about the Ferengi. It's from Bob Dustman, um, from May 12th, 1987. So, attached to this is a description of a race of people who will become the Starfleet adversaries. <clears throat> So they basically send it out to different people, asking them to come up with approaches for them. Um, so again, I'll just read a little bit of this out. Um, <clears throat> the Ferengi are fine-boned, small... Oh, this is from, sorry, this is from Gene Roddenberry, dated 11th of May, 1987. And it goes, the Ferengi are fine-boned, small, olive-complected, and completely hairless. Their hairs protrude at right angles to their faces. This is a bit I found interesting. So they're not as strong as humans, but they are somewhat faster than the fastest human. The slowest of them could easily outdraw Wyatt up. Although they try to move slowly when with humans and other creatures, they are so they are still characterised by quick darting movements because of the look of being on speed. So because obviously you didn't see that in the series. So I thought that's quite an interesting thing that they were considering doing for them. And I don't know, I mean, would that have made them a more fearsome adversary? Probably not, but I think it would have been interesting. Um, another thing here, uh, I think yeah, a 20th century human, perhaps even more so than a 19th century one, would understand them better than a 24th century human. The Ferengi represent capitalism carried to an extreme. They are 24th century robber barons who believe that... that uh, it is nature's way to reward the clever at the cost of the weak. They believe in the law of quid pro quo and believe it is there it is dishonest to take or receive without fair payment, although their idea of fair is that which profits them the most. Um, they would regard with suspicion, for example, even a close friend who invited them to dinner and did not charge them the cost of it and admire a friend who tried to charge more. They see gifts as an attempt to have them relax their garden, thus as an insult to their intelligence. Um, if the Ferengi could meet 19th or 20th century humans, they would find much agreement on many things, obviously from which we find out in Little Green Men, yeah. in DS9, uh, and would wonder where 24th century humanity went wrong. The Ferengi, in other words, represent, cent uh, represent much of the worst in the audiences world today. Not that 24th century humani humanity has gone com com communistic, co communistic or socialistic. They're simply, this is the basic good... This is that basic human goodness, so hated by the Ferengi, has come to the fore and made possible all our dreams, including the dream of peaceful diversity in cultures, ideas, and lifestyles. The key being that under such conditions, diversity doesn't threaten anyone. So, and it says about the, about the competition between Ferengi and Federation, it's that interesting by the fact they're kind of equal in terms of technology, like same like weaponry on their ships, same speed, which again, you know. Uh, yeah. 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 So, should we go on to the next one? Yeah. Yeah. So, I think the next one is actually. Yeah, it's one of yours. <laughs> uh, next one is a sketch, which is a uh, saucer section docking pod. And on the top of the saucer, in a room where the main shuttle bay where that runs around, 
there's a thing on the edge of it and on the all good things enterprise d it has the phaser cannons on top of it well, it turns out that they popped up and were like ducking pods so they were like lifts or elevators that could put people on top of the saucer sections hull yeah. which is quite interesting that I never knew about before no I, I, I found that is fascinating I just it's, I think that's really cool because you know I said do you know a lot about Trek yeah particularly in TNG so I think it's really cool that even now you're still discovering things you didn't know yourself so and if we go through a few, forward a few pages there was a bit that we both thought was funny oh yeah about the, the, the yeah about the was it beside plexus yeah yeah, I'll let you read this out. <laughs> so it's got a close-up of the uh, warp nacelle and the buzzer collector. And it, cause it simply has a comment on it going, yeah, I know what it looks like. It will be solved. I just love... We both love those comments where it's a bit like, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. We, we know, we know. I know. I so said this 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 binder seems to have... Like, this, all the stuff in this binder seems to have either, I know what this is... But thanks anyway, or I've got a clue what this means. It's kind of one extreme or the other, <laughs> which just makes me laugh. But it was just a nice insight into something that you wouldn't know was there unless you yeah. knew. And obviously, they never. I don't think you said they never used it. Did they? That's their no. thing. No. But again, it would have been quite cool to have it on the show, and it makes sense, you know. Next, uh, I think there's a. Oh, uh, so next one of mine is. Was it yours? I think it might be next. Uh, sorry, skipping forward a bit. Uh, God. Sorry for the. Oh, there we go. That's it. Right, so my next one is um, to Melinda Snodgrass from Rick Sternbacker and Mark Akuda. Uh, the subject is Wolf's Rite of Passage, which will be in The Icarus Factor in Season 2, dated February 3rd, 1988. Um, and, and this is a a memo to Melinda about some unsolicited and probably too late thoughts on Wolf's right of ascension and this bit at the end is great it goes as we noticed above we fully realised that there's probably no time to make such a major revision even if there is any interest in doing so but we wanted to take a shot at it anyway please feel free to use or ignore this stuff as you see fit and it's just like the kind of thing it just makes you wonder when this memo was sent I mean had that scene in the episode already been recorded like filmed or but Chance that the script was already released, was already given to the uh, characters and actors, I should say. Been greenlit, yeah. Uh, so I'll just read that a little bit of some of the proposed things they were thinking of changing or adding. Um, so we thought it possible that the ceremony could be viewed as bordering on sadomasochism, and so we came up with a few thoughts which might sidestep that issue while preserving Wolf's display of emotions. Um, we know very well that Wolf is a tough son of a bitch. Mere pain would not frighten him to the point where he would wonder if he could succeed in the right. Instead, he might fear that his tribal mem- members might not judge him worthy of um, being a full warrior. Uh, let's see what else we've got. Uh, oh yeah, an alternative ceremony might be based on some terrible but unseen source of physical or psychic pain to Wolf. So imagine a small screen or barrier which obstructs him from his crewmates. When Wolf is behind this barrier and out of camera view, he is subject to something terrible and we leave the exact details of the pain to the imagination, but we hear Wolf's howls of agony. Um, let's see. It goes into a bit about um, about the pain sticks as well and how to kind of insert them and all that kind of stuff. But 
Yeah, I just I just thought it was a really quite interesting tidbit of kind of, you know, an idea that had already been probably written at least, as you said, but then they're thinking of, well, actually, is there anything else we can add or change to this just so late on? So, anything you want to say about that? No. That? Right. Okay, next couple of yours. So, my next one is uh, a memo discussing different ways Captain Card could open Halo frequencies for Season 2. So, this is a memo from uh, Mike Huda uh, to Patrick Stewart. So, obviously, between Season 1 and Season 2, Patrick Stewart sort of said, can we change the way that we do it? Per our discussion for a less cumbersome way for Picard to order the opening of Halo frequencies, I've talked with Rick Sternbeck and we've come up with the following. Um, Picard, open a channel or voice channel, please. Com channel, please. Hail them. Attempt contact, please. This latter will be especially appropriate for totally alien ship, which would not know what an hailing frequency is. Uh, with Wolf replying, hailing, sir. Hailing frequencies open. No response on any hailing frequency. Dialogue such as this will hopefully be a little easier to deliver while paying proper homage to Star Trek tradition. Hopefully this is what you're looking for. If you like it, I'll be happy to draft a memo under your name for Rick and or Jean. I just thought it was a nice, in, nice thing just to kind of see how the show was evolving. Yeah, and I think, as you say, it's kind of like... Um, it's just something that seems kind of not really that significant. It's like, well, actually, just a, like, a slight tweak will just make things just flow a bit better or make things a bit easier and like you said I mean obviously they never did attempt contact plays which I think I, I get why they come up with it but I don't think that would have worked um, but yeah obviously Hayley no Fre- but the choice was there which was nice yeah and obviously you have was it Hayley Frequency's Open is the main one that they use for Wolf or when it was um, uh, Tasha in season one so but yeah I, th- I thought that was just a really interesting little tidbit there but uh, again it also gives you an insight into that they let actors you know give input so I think that's really quite cool because I think some of the best kind of things that have been made over the years whether it's TV, games, etc, etc is getting the actors input because you know they, the directors they don't have to they can just say well this is how we're going to do it that's it okay but sometimes you get their input it can improve things like something like that so uh, next one is my probably one of my favourite ones in here uh, a memo from Mike Huda to Rick Burma in response to a shuttlecraft in unnatural selection dated 22nd of November 1988 and it says uh, Richard James has asked Rick Sternbeck and myself to come up with a name for the full scale shuttlecraft exterior in unnatural selection it's been such a tradition that shuttlecraft named after famous astronomers and scientists who come up with, with the following would like to offer them for your consideration so Bonstil after the late Chelsea Bonstil Dean of modern astronomy artists McCall after Christina McCall challenge astronaut and something I talked to Jamie about she was a real life American teacher who won a competition to be the first teacher in space but unfortunately kind of in the same realm as Apollo 1 ended in disaster as it um, blew up on launch and never came into being but there was a um, a message for them at the end of Star Trek 4 I think it is so I thought that was a nice add on to it uh, Tycho after Tycho Brown historic astronomer Clark after writer Arthur C. Clark inventor of the communication satellite 
Elbaz after Farouk Elbaz, geologist, which went on to famously be seen in Times Squared. Karof after R. Karof, developer of modern Soviet booster technology. Titov after German Titov, cosmonaut. Kromorov after Vladimir Kromorov, cosmonaut pilot of Soyuz 1, first human to be killed in space flight. Sakharov after the noted Soviet physicist currently in exile for his outspoken political beliefs, which is what they ended up with. And finally, Einstein after Albert Einstein. Please let us know if any of these strike your fancy. So I I loved that, and I say the Christine McCall. I loved the yeah. It's, it's a shame you said they didn't use it in the actual show, but the fact they even considered her, I think, is really nice. So you know, the fact they even did that was yeah. It's just it's it's in a way, it's yeah, it's just nice. But I've managed to get two blog posts out of names of Starfleet vessels, so I I've always been fascinated by them. So uh, my next one is something that never came into being, but I love the concept of it. It's the long sought after antimatter transporter bomb. Uh, so here we've got on the this couple of pages a diagram of the weapon itself and how it would like, hit the Enterprise. Um, so I'll just read a bit of it. So uh, a bomb is installed in a new type torpedo casing. It's fired against target, which probably has its shields up. The weapon detects the point at which EM. Uh, EM pressure on the shields which is a certain level and detonates um, there's a diagram below about how the detonation is accomplished uh, by combining equal amounts of matter and antimatter as in a standard photon torpedo the resulting energy instead of merely blowing outward at a target is used to drive a field generator of a very special construction it can manipulate the charge and spin of matter and atomic structure in this case however the field is focused to burst through the shield layers and hit the hole um, where the field hits the hole, it turns matter into antiprotons. This will throw, this will target, this will have the effect to turn the target to Swiss cheese very quickly. Cheese being the ultimate weapon of the end of season one of fight. <laughs> I still can't believe it was cheese, honestly. Oh dear. Um, focus beam hits target. <clears throat> so this this weapon must have limitations, otherwise we have an invincible weapon. Which we know it can't be. <laughs> What's the thing that you noticed? The typos, they changed, wasn't it, an A to an I? Yeah, invincible, like, yeah. In pen. <laughs> um, the weapon must be able to push on your target shields to be effective. Uh, this may not always be possible. In some cases, the torpedo will slide off uh, a target shield and detonate without the beam hitting dead on. We need this to be a fired weapon since distance and power requirements prevent, the use, prevent us from simply projecting a beam from the ship. In case of using the weapon against ground targets, we can predict a massive blast of gamma rays and other ionising radiation resulting from detonation. If the beam is set for a wider spread and the weapon is detonated in the atmosphere, the beam will cause air molecules to annihilate in billions of antimatter reactions, each producing deadly radiation. The surface of the planet may not be physically blasted to dust, but all organic life will be killed as in a neutral bomb. So, yeah, it's a pretty formidable, ghastly weapon. Which they obviously come up with the concept, but they again they, they never use. But interesting nonetheless. So plus, well, I feel like with it they did use elements of it in the um, booby trap. Yeah, as the sort of simulators. Oh yeah, is it? And I think I've said the concept of anti-protons again that comes up in uh, Deadlock and Voyage. So even some of the concepts they talked about within that they was used anyway, which is so it's not as like it went to waste, which is good. So. Um, the next one, one of yours. 
So another one of the Technobabble pages, and this one's uh, for Contagion. Um, yeah. So just tweaking the tweaking it. So scene sixteen. If data says reboot, you might want to specify that he was trying to reboot his desk terminal. It sounds like that's the thing that's currently flipping out. Um, also in scene twenty-seven, it might be nice to mention. Oh no, scene. 27 or 41 it might be good to slip in something about reloading all the ship's programs from the protected non-volatile uh, archives in the main core as mentioned the shutdown couldn't be done piecemeal because the virus would still be scrolled away in some subsystems like many real virus particles also in scene 27 it might be nice to mention the ship's lifeboats as well as the suits the enterprise's scores as lifeboats all located below the square off-white panel scene on the miniature um, scene 34 you ought to convert to kilometers just multiply miles by 1.6 um, yeah it, it's just interesting just trying to them working stuff out oh well, that's it yeah that's the whole reason uh, scene 45 do Romulans really count in minutes just curious it's just so lovely to come into it's a bit like I don't know well, you know, it's also just like you never. How do other species perceive time? Because I, again, it's from that human perspective of do we all perceive time by minutes and seconds? Well, do other species or not? I suppose, I suppose in a way it doesn't because if you think of one example, I'm thinking of is Voyager. You know, your, your favorite one uh, was it timing again? They talk about like, keltos in rotations or whatever the heck it is. They, they they look at time differently. So I don't know. Anyway, next one. Yeah. So, a bit. Uh, right, so my next one is phasers once and for all so uh, so this was this was um, this memo was generated because there's been some it says it, there's been some honest confusion over what phasers do and what our new and improved phasers capabilities are this memo is specifically formulated to eliminate that confusion and and get your 24th century life in order once you've tried the best that Starfleet R&D has to offer, you won't want to go back to some run-of-the-mill black market molecular disruption weapon. So obviously you've got the two type main phases, which are obviously, um, well, type one and obviously type, type two. Type one is cricket. That's and it. type two, the season one was the dust buster, and then it got more and more... Um, Streamlined. Yeah. Yeah. Is your favourite the dust buster? Uh, no, the dolphin from Nemesis. Is that your favourite one? Yeah. Um... So yeah, and then, and then, and it goes into detail about both of the phasers types and the different settings and what they do. So I'll I'll read out some of it. Um, so the phaser type one, um, setting one. This is the lowest setting. Your basic stun when aimed at a human humanoid target, it knocks the subject out for a few minutes. When aimed at um, when aimed at an inanimate object, it merely warms it up. So you can cook popcorn with it if you left it on for a couple of minutes. Um, See, section two. This so this section two. So this is medium stun. Some humanoids are resistant to light stun. So try this if he, she, it keeps charging. When aimed at a chicken pot pie, it will cook in about five minutes or so. <laughs> um, with normal hitting normal humans, will knock them out for about the same amount of time. This setting will not mark any like walls and structures. Um, setting three. This is heavy stun. Normal humans will sleep it off in about an hour. Resistant humanoids have a bifums and snooze for about fifteen minutes. House fires will bore a little. I think when we tried to do this before, um, I, I think we kind of come up with a joke of, I just had this notion of, okay, so if you've got, obviously Starfleet is a high pressure kind of, you know, 
career, isn't it? You're not going to get much sleep. So I thought, so I wonder if you've got these these moments where officers will just go up to someone and go, you know, I've not slept in a few days. Could you just stun me so I'll snooze for 15 minutes? <laughs> I should have done that in night terrors, I'll tell you. Um, but yeah, uh, let's see, setting for, so this is where it starts to hurt. You get kind of, the, the higher the settings go up, then you've got like more like neural damage, which becomes less reversible, clothes and building materials ignite, that kind of stuff. Um, yeah, so you've got like, um, like definite, so you've got like a setting, so I think it's six, like, oh, this is definitely like a kill setting. And like setting eight, it's like total zap. So this will cause a human or humanoid to totally vaporize. Physical barriers break down. And yeah, then you've got the type two. The, what's it, what I find interesting about this is they've got four different settings. No, uh, type two. Six, uh, seven. Seven. But they 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 kind of are in relation to type one. So I'll give you an example. So you've got setting one medium stump. There is no light stump. <laughs> Setting two is null damage, as in type one setting four. Setting three is first kill level, as in type one setting six. Uh, bioform setting four bioform vaporizations in type one setting eight. Because you can tell from that, that type one is like a distilled type two. Yeah. With the kind of equivalents, the kind of yeah. It's got the bare minimum you need to kind of. You know, stun a person, kill a person. Yeah, and I think even within those, even in those settings, there's varying degrees in those. Because I think I'm thinking back to um, hard time when Chief O'Brien gets the phaser from the lock from the uh, you know, box or whatever the heck you call it, and he's he's turning up the the phaser of setting, isn't he? Well, that's the thing. With that was a clever thing about those props is you, they do have all the levels. You, know, you press it and it does go yeah. up slightly, and you can yeah. select personally what level you want. So and if I've, you want maximum, you, you keep pressing until yeah. it gets maximum. And I think it's kind of color coded because I think it went from like green to like extreme red, yeah. didn't it? Yeah, yeah. So yeah, I did. That kind of thing just fascinates me. I love, I love the type, is it type two. Well, T, was it type two TOS? Which I love. Including Strange New Worlds. Oh, those phrases are oh, gorgeous. So, um, but yeah, just again, just my kind of thing. I just found it because, again, there were certain things that I didn't know. I didn't know there were so many settings and specifically what they do. So, it's yeah, I love the descriptions in there, kind of because you do need the real life equivalents to kind of make sense of what is this fictional world all about? How, yeah. What does that mean in terms of heat? in the real world, like yeah, and it's, I love the fact the phase is not just to like st- hurt people or stun enemies. It's like, well, actually, you can keep yourself warm with it. You can cook things with it because it, it is <laughs> phased energy. So it's yeah. like you need to the nearest equivalent is like an oven. So yeah. you might as well just yeah, kind of use it's that. It's not just the fence room. It's also an oven. <laughs> it's effectively what it is. So oh well, heater in um, piece of action. Isn't it? Oh, <laughs> give me one of those fancy heaters, yeah. <laughs> So, uh, right, so next one, this one of your ones. So this one is um, five page, pages detailing 3T, the Federation Summer, the Shellac Corporation in the Ensigns and Command episode, and it is a full-fledged treaty, isn't it? It is what's in there, and it is legal guff that they came up with to fill... The document because they didn't think anyone would ever read it. Yeah. I said to Jamie previously, the Grail diary in Indiana Jones, 
is effectively three like 30 pages duplicated over and over again to fill it and I love those sort of details to it I love some of these things as kind of a two-way this is a particularly good place for some useless text simulating real words it kind of fills up the space if you know what I mean this is a story about the shellac so I, I, I suppose a word or two that's official is always helpful it's all like that where it's just like we don't know we're just making crap up to fill fill time um uh five five six three point six the federation at this point in time seems more tangled up in paperwork than their ran contra scandal business which we don't know what that's in reference to because no. it's before our time but i just love that just kind of real life events is kind of well this makes more sense than that thing and it, it, it's all like that it's to say Jamie knows this it's five pages of them yeah. just going and I don't know what a person will put that down it, that bring, it brings back fond memories of that episode and particularly with how many pages was that document they told us like oh it was like thousands of pages 50,000 or 15,000 yeah. or something all of this uh, 563.3 all of this going stu uh, ongoing stuff is you simply to get the text along to subparagraph 9 which is quite a way down the page so it's just you know it's all in here you, could, you know you could read it all and see what what it all means and I still would love to know what the, the stat about that species the Grizzellas and the hibernation wasn't it for six months I'd love to know what they were about Lizard people. Just people. Because what Sasha always relies on, lizard people to save yeah. the day. Cool. So, yeah, that, that was it. It's just the real case of, oh, you know what? You know what I've just seen, Jamie? Or that? Or these. Oh, is that what I was talking about last time? We're going to find the damn thing. Oh. And one of the one thing that isn't on any of our things, but I thought was quite cool, was episode we're not keen on but it's quite a cool thing it's a proposal the federation made in the price so it's all listed on a single way for sheet of paper and you can read it all in yeah this... I'm, I'm sure you could screen cap it and see it but it's quite cool seeing a full page where it's kind of key provisions and benefits to the people of the buzz and yeah because this is republic this is what we were trying to find for ages wasn't it well we didn't no we didn't really look properly but I knew it was in yeah, that realm yeah. thing and Jane was flicking to the next page it was like oh that looks familiar so it just sit there and it's like lump sum payment of one and a half federation credits to be made upon conclusion of agreement ten thousand no hundred thousand credits per Barzan Barzanian year thereafter so that kind of tells you Barzanian year isn't the same as a a terror one, doesn't it? What do you mean? We love the price. <laughs> but it, it, it just details yeah. it all in its entirety. Long-term economic, technical and educational assistance to be pro provided by the United Federation Planets. It, so that's quite a cool find that we found this time around. As I say, there are perks of doing the damn thing again. Okay, carry on, Jeremy. So that was just a thing that was like, oh, I see a thingy thing that... <laughs> Um, so my next one is on the matter of positronic brains, the universe and everything. So this goes into detail about obviously Data's brain, how it looks and how Data's processed and what would happen if something went wrong. What how you don't know it. is Jamie's gone for the long ones that I didn't go for. Yes. Well, they would have, yeah, yeah. 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 Um, and all the ones that you haven't heard that are also yeah. quite lengthy. Well, I'm not going to 
to go into yeah. too much detail. Uh, so Circus indicted <laughs> brain and presumably in his offsprings are probably based on a very advanced superconductor material ranging neural net paths. Damaged or fatigued circuit areas are replaced by various biochemical processes. The fatigued material can be broken down and transported to another part of the body when the more materials can be reprocessed and retransported to build new circuits. These new circuits can then be written to uh, with programming. Uh, see, uh, uh, so if data created these child's brain using the replicator or even a different circuit making device, we can still see bit errors occurring in the process. Like a computer virus, it would not be readily visible but would get worse as time went on. Even at the molecular level, the structure might look fine in isolated sections, but as a whole, the system would not function properly. Um, this potential fix would be to wipe effective areas, essentially getting the circuit back to its generic net state and then lay down new path instructions. Normally, these are areas of generic net ready for new programming as data takes in new information or adds to his banker experiences, etc. And these areas are accessed, copied, and spread about. The trouble with this fix could be in changing all of the interrelated areas fast enough. If the instructions for fixing the damaged portion of the brain are themselves damaged, the rebuilt circuit layers would be flawed, leading to potential cascade failures or of other brain structures. So, and they also say what they think the positronic brain would actually look like as well. So, yeah, just again, it's about data. So it's a given why I picked that. It's not. There's not a super like complex reason why I picked it it's Data he's one of my favourite characters in Star Trek so I kind of I zeroed in on that and just thought well that's, that's, that's I love that kind of stuff so yeah so it's, yeah that's it really <laughs> um, I think the next one is a bit of a jump in the binder here I think the next couple of ones are yours uh, aren't we missing one? Oh no oh yeah alright okay yep well done Jamie that's okay um, so next one is from the, a, uh, a memo from Michael Kuda and Rick Stern back to Melinda Sawgrass, uh, dated 9th of August 1989. So that would be season two, I believe. Yeah, about season two, that sounds good. And it, the subject is Technobabble for Picard's Quiz. And we both love this one because it's... Um, <laughs> Uh, unused Picard, tra- uh, Picard training Wesley scene and it says Picard as a training exercise I want you to pilot a course to the rendezvous assuming we are operating under red alert flight protocol with three Romulan spacecraft presumed to be cloaked near our destination Wesley grins a little as if he were no problem I sir I'm not finished you will assume that warp manoeuvring power is down to 17% and the Romulans have a new coking device which reduces the reliable section range to under 10,000 kilometres. Reaching down to hit a couple of buttons on Wesley's panel, and you will assume inertia dampens that this is on the full manual, and that auto-negration is inoperative. Wesley not assures himself as a moment ago, I sir, Card returns to command area while Riker looks on with barely concealed amusement. Picard quietly, no sense making it too easy. Riker, Riker responds, no sir, it'll teach him how to prioritise. And it's just a nice scene <laughs> that we both would love to have seen. And again, it fits into the, I think you said before, kind of that whole thing of Wesley's not like, you know, super saves the day, knows everything. Yeah, Wonder Boy. So I think that would have been quite nice. Because well, they do, I think in the series, they do show a couple of times like, um, oh, blimey, the, the nanites. 
season three Evolution. Opener. Evolution. Yeah, he made a mistake. He let them out. You know, he made a mistake, and it does happen. So, yeah, again, just a cool. I think that would have been amusing to see. So, next one again is another one of yours. And then this one is another Techno Babble page uh, from Mike and Rick Sternbach, Mike Acuda and Rick Sternbach to Mike Pillar uh, for the Techno Babble notes for the enemy. And again, it's more of the same. Scene 7, page 2. Geordie, I'm picking up some traces of tech on the visor, Commander. And the suggested comment is I can see some traces of eutridium residue. Note this is this is the name of the explosive compound used by Mick Fleetwood in last season's Manhunt. And I now get the reference now. I couldn't quite figure out last time what it was on about, but Mike Fleetwood under all the makeup, not that you could tell that it was him. So that's always quite cool when they actually call back to something previously said. Um, Oh, where is it? Where did it say it before? It was about the about the phaser. Yeah. Um might be next page, show me. No, there's only two, Jamie. I'm sure it was there. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Scene fifty one, page twenty three. Geordie just stopped by to rescue a big fella, which I'm still willing to do if you put down the phaser. Comment if Bakra has his own rumbling weapon. In addition to his Starfleet phaser, he would tend to brandish his own gun more than the captured weapon. Just which I'm willing, I'm still willing to do if you put the gun, put, put the uh, down put the down gun. the gun. So that's all quite cool. Um, yeah, because you were saying to me like, well, if he's got two weapons, why would he? Why would he? He would, he would use his rumbling one. It's one he knows. It's going to use his structure over the phaser that he's not familiar with. Yeah. So obviously, he just holsters that, doesn't he? Until yeah. He gets back to Jordan. So I just love that where it's just a bit like we'll fill this with tech, and then at a later date we'll fill it with actual what you thought. Eventually, you know, them trying to solve problems of kind of that doesn't make tech make logical sense. So we'll change that to something that would make sense. Anything more you want to read on the second page? Oh, yeah. Uh, scene 83, page 55. All the Romulan ships' phaser banks are powering down, Captain. Suggests the Romulan ships' disruptors are powering down. And it's just that nice thing of kind of. Differentiating between the two. Yeah. Um, and I just, I just love that. Just kind of thing of. Yeah. Because again, you think the Romulan ships' phaser banks, you think, well, did Romulan. Because you could automatically think, well, did the Romulans get hold of Federation technology? Like weaponry or something? It doesn't make sense from, like, prob- established canon from yeah. previous seasons or what we yeah. know so far. And it's just nice that it kind of. Again, it's the uh, writer's um, submission policy and kind of writers not so up on their track. Mm that they will kind of sit there and adjust it to what what the production team is used to and what will make more sense. Uh, so the next one... Similar um, vein, isn't it? Yeah, so again, technical commentary. This is my one for the defector to Michael Pillar from Rick Sternback. Um, so this is just um, just a few things like uh, just suggestions of how things, again, will go in the episode. Um, so... Uh, number two, scene nine. If the Enterprise is in five kilometres, it will be very easy to extend shield radius to encompass, com- encompass the scout. At five kilometres, Geordie's convoy in scene ten still works when talking about the shields. 
not been able to take much punishment since we have seen that the shields normally deploy to a distance of only a few hundred meters. Um, scene 37, the normal way we show that a message is top secret is the Federation logo appears um, with copy indicating some level of clearance, like I was only catching JJ, JL Picard and the captain can then tell the computer to play the message or initiate real-time communication if in range of uh, Starfleet headquarters. See the beginning of conspiracy for Picard's conversation with Walk and Kill. Um, so again, it's kind of, it talks about different aspects like communication and about data, talking about what sensors would have picked up had there been activity on the planet. So it's about radon dispersal or talk, could talk about geological disturbances or refined metals residue, that kind of stuff. So yeah, it's just, it's just a bunch of different things. And then they talk about a bit more about communication and they reference some movies, including a film called Failsafe in 1963. So again, just kind of references to films to kind of get a better idea of, you know, different ways of kind of communicating secretly and that kind of stuff. So yeah, yeah. So I think the next few actually might <laughs> I'm going to be talking a bit then for you. Uh, so yeah, the next few of these are, are actually mine. Uh, so the next one I uh, chose was. Um, Dan Curry from Mike Akuda Orbital Mechanics, uh, date of 17th of November 1989. As we, dis Dan, as we discussed here are some diagrams which will hopefully make the orbital mechanics in Deja Q a little clearer. Please don't hesitate to call if you have any questions. So obviously this is, this is going into detail about how the Enterprise is trying to use a tractor beam to divert the moon away from the planet and stop it obviously from you know, killing all the people on the planet. Um, so it talks about atmosphere and perigree and kind of so just like a few different things here, um, and also what would happen if um, if it if it if they were successful or succeeded. So it goes, if we fail, the moon will continue to lose speed in the atmosphere and soon crash on the planet. I just love this little addition. Oh dear. <laughs> Um, if we succeed, the moon will have gained enough speed to raise the perigree and avoid the atmosphere. So it's just. Yeah, I just think it's just a really interesting, really cool kind of diagram that goes into detail about the different kind of scenarios and the different factors um, that come into play. Just uh, cut off, but... Oh, yeah. Also, if we do a tractor pull, push-pull with tractor beam fail, we could cause... It's, it's, like it's cut off, yeah. but it's, I love Please. that just kind of, you know, could cause it to kind of explode or kind of that sort of thing. <laughs> it's just kind of... It's all those extra notes where you just go, that's quite cool, and it's a bit tasty. Uh, so, again, blimey, most of these... <laughs> I've got a three here. My God, die. You will, you'll get, you will hear Simon's voice again, like him, obviously, talking more in a bit. I'm probably getting sick of hearing my voice. Uh, so, the next you one... You chose the long ones. I know. Don't so look at me. me. I'm looking at you right now. You picked it all. No, I'm joking. So the next one I've got is um, another technical commentary from yesterday's Enterprise. Um, from Michael Kuda and Rick Stern back to Michael Piller. Uh, a few blue sky ideas about time, space, rifts, etc. So this is basically a memo talking about uh, an, an opportunity to improve on standard time travel story. Um, and it's about a few thoughts about the mechanism operating on the obviously the Enterprise C. Uh, so again it says as always you don't have to use it all but it's nice to know it's all here so I'll just I'll just read 
my god I'll just read a couple of bits here <laughs> blimey uh, so if the rift is solely a natural Albert rare celestial object its origin might be found at a loop of interstellar point a microscopic in diameter unbelievably long and incredibly dense akin to the light smashing mass of a black hole um if, on the other hand, the rift was caused by what we could call an artificial event, we might imagine the sea ship in its own time having fired a salvo of photon torpedoes near the terminus of a wormhole or proto-wormhole. If not a wormhole-like object, then possibly a heretofore unknown object that gives rise to a spurt of interstellar stream due to the detonation of the torpedoes. In high-energy physics, subatomic particles are seemingly created out of nothing during energetic reactions. The galaxy might harbour whole zoos of strange material lurking just under normal space-time. I haven't got a flipping clue what I just said there. It's fascinating because <laughs> it's kind of it's what we, what happens with podcasts. You come up with one idea and that spurs off another three. And with yeah. that, because what you were saying and probably makes no sense to you, but I got um, it feels like they were touching on disaster. Cosmic string. Yeah. Well, I think it's just talking about cosmic string in there and you're yeah. gonna go, Ooh well, there might be something there, we could do something with that and that then spurred on disaster later down the year. So you, you find that like one of the other notes I found was a memo dating from twenty first of November nineteen ninety one discussing environmental story tech ideas. Force of nature. Yeah. Yeah. So long bef- like three years ahead or two years ahead of Force yeah. nature being written and produced, and I think that's what's really great is because I think in a way that that kind of thing it speaks to you as a person because as I said when you come up with ideas you note down every little thing, and it's like well you never know you might use this something you might use this later for something so again they've obviously had a similar mindset of well actually we've come it's up on with a the grander scale than what yeah, we do but yeah it's, it's same principle but applies the whole idea is a bad idea yeah and um, you never quite know when it will be helpful. Yeah. And you can pick and pull ideas from here, there, and everywhere. And so a small little word, so a bit of wording in there, will have spurred someone else on going, actually, that will work for my story to then yeah. to cause that thing. But I think I think I picked it because again, it's well, it's time travel. So it's, you know, even if I don't understand a word of it, I still find it interesting. So no, but what you said was effectively what happened because they were talking about torpedoes that is what they end up going for mm. in ultimately in the end because mm. they talk about torpedoes sitting at the same time and causing the whole whole thing so it's so fascinating that in amongst it so like here's mm. a possible set of ideas we can go for choose your poison choose mm. which one you want to go for so uh it talks about how what happened, what would happen if the sea ship goes back through the hole, and then I like, I'm going to just read this last bit here. So, yeah, few, it's just licking it, Jamie. A few more thoughts about Garner. One of the biggest logic problems in most time travel stories is the question of how someone in an altered timeline is aware that it has been in fact been a change in time. It might be nice to suggest that Garner's existence somehow transcends our own, thus one, making her character more mysterious, and two, covering such logic problems. In scene 24, you might add something where Garland says that a part of me exists outside your time, your reality. That part remembers what time was before. Yeah, as I kind of inferred earlier, I kind of skipped the longer one. So some of this stuff's new to me because I've kind of immediately skipped over it, kind of. But that goes on a bit. I'm kind of. I think that's clear because it it gets around the whole logic of how the hell does she know something's not right? It makes her character more mysterious, and then obviously you've got that whole film with Tasha Yar, where it solves that as well. Because 
kind of it's again it's elephant in the room you kind of have to talk about it if you yeah. if you don't that's going to raise more questions than answers you might just go you know what let's just deal with it head on and just deal with it and like you say you get a better story as a consequence and yeah. and like you say it's like they went to the East Coast and went, do you want to come back or right, yeah I'll come back yeah. so everyone's happy and Star Trek fans are pedantic so we would have picked up on it it's like well, well hang on a minute we're back fine and like kind of might have spotted something Okay, so another one from me, then we're back to Simon. <laughs> uh, so this one is, again, well, actually, this is a nice short one. I mean, that's nice and short. So it's a quick memo from Rick Stern back to Mike Pillar. Um, let me just check on my phone. Of course, my phone decides to lock itself. Bloody thing. So this next one is um, about subatomic particles. Um, so the D-ship's analysis of the radiation quark decay rates of subatomic particles coming from the region of this rift would indicate they are not consistent with this universe and time. So we're still with yesterday's enterprise. Um, uh, sea ship as well as the enemy vessels probably had no idea the proto wormhole was even there, submerged in their local space time. Photon detonations blew the rift open among the length of the strings, the two domains were connected. It may be that the wormholes are created along a length of string or at least at either end, almost like budding flowers. Uh, in simple terms, the rift can be described as an interface between two distinct space-time domains caused by the combined reactions of a proto-wormhole and its uh, parent loop of interstellar string. Um, so, and then it's just basically a diagram which kind of explains the, how this rift opens. Yeah, I and, think I just went, I have no idea what the hell yeah. that's on about and just media went past it. <laughs> It's how the rift opens and all that kind of stuff. So, yeah. Lastly, so, with yesterday's Enterprise, if you hear in the uh, 10 forward scene, there's a PA going on in the background. Yeah. And this just explains everything that's said in it. <laughs> Pardon me, sorry. <laughs> I could be able to cut that out of it. <laughs> Um, so there's general so uh, Winnie Noose from Mike and Rick and it's just say military PA voices in SA Enterprise general sir shuttle squadron 2 personnel please report to tactical room for debriefing attention all departments lifeboat evacuation drill has been rescheduled for 2100 hours Ensign Thomas please report to combat information centre attention all engineering personnel Main deflector test is now in progress. Please avoid any unnecessary force fields usage. Um, Lieutenant Edwards to phase of uh, con- safety control. Code 27. Repeat, Code 27. This one I like. Dr. Joshua Kim, report to cessation ops. So that's quite cool. Because never seen it in live action. Seen it in, in lower decks, but mm. never in live action. Attention all personnel. Turbulence shaft 4 is an operative above deck 8 Lieutenant Noose report to ADR immediately and what I, what stands out is what who was it to hmm who was the memo to oh Wendy Noose so Lieutenant Noose yeah after her character yeah and then there's sick base stuff where it says Dr. Slow report to Noel G Ward stat triage team 2 to main shuttle bay any available cardiac personnel will report to operation room 2 immediately. 
Note that in present day hospitals, all urgent PA announcements are delivered very calmly but are repeated in their entirety. So I thought that was very insightful. Oh, yeah. Um, because you don't hear half of it because of the dialogue in the scene. Yeah. When I'm playing a game or saying, you know, you hear, you've got normal dialogue with subtitles, but you hear other stuff in the background and you never know what you're going to hear. So, yeah, I think that was pretty cool. Back to me again. Oh, my God. Yeah. Okay, so um, the next one I picked um, was another technical commentary um, Bloodlines. So, uh, to from Mike Akudo. Yeah, you say bloodlines. It's actually brothers. Is it? Yeah, read the read it. Yeah. Where are we in? The oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, bloodlines, aka brothers. Um, from Mike Akudo, <laughs> Rick Stern, back to Michael Perry, December nineteenth, nineteen eighty nine. A final draft. Um, so this refers to obviously about data and his safeguards um, taking over the ship. Yeah, thank you. Um, so the new team force. So the new technology that it refers to could be molecular clipping, angstrom level clipping, or sub micro matrix fixing. Whatever the heck that means. Seen the bad boy. Yeah. The safeguards data mentions could be physical, psychological inhibitor safeguards. Um, so data goes. It will shut down before violent behaviour can begin, or suggest to change it to. It will shut down before. Deleterious behaviour can begin. I would just stuck with the first one of it, maybe, you know. Um, so just making some comments. Um, oh, no, you no, it is Bloodlines, season three, look. Talking about Lau. Isn't it that one? Lau? You know, when Data Creator? Is that Offspring. Blood? Offspring. Is that what it's referring to then? Maybe that was the original title, Bloodlines. I think that's what it's referring to. Um, so I'll just read that. You carry on, James. A couple of these. So if if you if you want to rationalise the reason for Lau asking so many questions when she obviously has a wealth of knowledge packed away in a positronic brain, you could say that whilst the knowledge is there, she still has to learn how to access and process it. Relationships must be made between concepts, groups of concepts, etc. Isolated facts without connections are useless in problem solving. So they go and talk about her hardwiring process as well. And again, it's the same reason why I picked the positronic brain one. It's just, again, it's about data and the, and the mechanisms of how how the programming kind of works. So again, again, it's just, that's why I really picked it. Interesting, Offspring wasn't released until the 12th of March, 1990. So this would have been about four, four months later then, at least. Okay. Isn't that ahead though, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. December 19th. Yeah, so four months later. Yeah. So, um, right, next one is, might be one of yours. <laughs> oh, this looks like a nice short one. There we go. So this is your next one. Detailed specifics on data description for the most toys episode. Um, it's just simply a rundown of everything that they've mentioned previously. So, two, 24.6 kilograms of various tripolymer structural elements, 11.8 kilograms of moly, moly denim and cobite composites. This is his skeleton, in quote marks. 3.7 litres of silicon based fluids with significant trace of quantities of various semi organic 
compounds. This is his blood. Composites based on dialogue in Deja Q. 1.3 kilograms of bioplast sheeting, which is his skin. Lesser quantities of fine grain quadratanium, reference from data law. Tritanium linear combat memory crystal. Some kind of negatron pulse nanoservers. Platinum radium positronic matrix. Just is that. Polysilicate optimum fiber bundles. I, I just love that because it's just kind of all their knowledge from everything up to this date mm. in one memo so that they could use it in that small brief scene at the beginning of the episode yeah. where it's kind of she scans him and gets all mm. this information up. Mm. That's it, really. Just yeah. kind of it's just cool little thing. Again, within it, we wanted short stuff and long stuff because it is just a. It's a gold mine of information. You never quite know what what is in here. I think next year. I hope there's more of your stuff later than mine because I feel like I've been talking myself to death with this. <laughs> uh, so my next well, one that was number eleven, Jamie. Yeah, your one. Yeah, I think uh, for me well, that, was, that was new stuff. This is number thirteen. This one. So this one again, nice short one. Look at that. So this one is. Um, to, the same episode. It is. To Eric Steelwell from Mike and Rick. Subject, what can I, Brian, do to date a zap gun? Date 26th of February, 1919. Oh, yes, another workout and technic wasn't it? Yeah. So scene 71, page 54. Um, note that in the hunted scene 19, Brian says that he's rendered it inoperable. So Brian's speech, I'm something, editing it out, deleting the device, removing it from the pattern buffer, altering the linear expand, expansivity that should keep it from firing. Rendering it inert, pulling it from the matrix, uh, and then you've got say so pulling it from. So I'm pulling it from the matrix. So other suggestions are isolating the weapon, resetting the energy state to null, isolating the weapon, damp damping nuclear velocity to zero, and say so I'm cutting it from the buffer, so excising it. You can tell where they've preferred stuff, but they've put asterisk next to them, yeah. where it says no. In these items, data would have to materialise without the weapon in his hand. Yeah. So it's them trying to work out the editing of this scene to kind of go, well, what if we do this thing, he won't be holding it at the end of what, the scene. What should he do? How What should? How should he say? I so? think, because I don't think you've got it noted down anywhere, I think they ended up going for, rendered it in there. I think that's what they eventually what ended did, up going yeah. for, because I tried to note down what they ended up with, like with the shuttle. But, yeah, just a cool little... It's, it's another tech in the tech stuff, isn't it? Yeah. So let's go to the next one. Okay, so this one is <laughs> another technical commentary. And again, another. Why should I? I'm regretting picking these long ones. Uh, so, technical commentary, home again, home again. Uh, 13th of June 1990 from Rick Sternback. So, I think this was an idea for an episode that never came to fruition, I think. I said it with unknown, but. Um, so, again, I'll just read a little bit of this. So the idea is that a time-dependent program has gone off in Data's brain is rather intriguing. No, I think this is brothers. Your brothers? Okay, so I think I just... Oh, yeah, that would make sense, because the beacon was calling them back to... Um, to uh, uh, Oh, God, soon, wasn't it? So, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, that makes sense. So it talks about, obviously, Data's program having that 
setting of oh yeah it's like a switch mode to something milestone in his development um let's see and it talks about kind of the process of how they're going to have data take over the ship so um it'll be interesting to perhaps tie that as mode switch to some significant date or milestone in his development um, one would hope, however, that this mode switch would not override his basic positronic ROM circuits. Um, the, those three Asimovian rules of robotics. Um, so it's kind of that concept of, yes, Data takes over the ship and stops, stops, you know, his, uh, his the crew from interfering, but he's not going to hurt them. So, do you know? What are you looking at the next one? Um, there's always clues in and around it if you're not sure where it is. And yeah. this. The right next to their memo will explain it, and it is brothers. Oh, it is brothers, yeah. yeah. If you look. Yeah. So, yeah. Quarantine. Yeah, so just. It's just basically that, really. I so. think one that I liked was them trying to work out what to call the damn homing beacon, if you remember. I think I showed you oh, the yeah. page, and I ended up choosing yeah. it, but it is in here somewhere. Nearby. I think. Oh yeah, you've got. I think the next few sections are actually more of you than me, so I can actually take a, my voice can take a bit of a bloody break. I think the next one is yeah, next couple of yours. So, have it, Mister. It's not for very long, I'm afraid. Again, I've for sure. Okay, it's fine. Uh, my next one is a memo explaining why Chief O'Brien is in the lab scene instead of Jordan Forge for Best of Both Worlds Part Two. Uh, Michael Peeler. Uh, from Rick and Mike covering for LeVar dated 9th of July 1990 how to justify bringing O'Brien into the science lab scene scene A6 data using multimodal friction sourcing I have been able to detect a complex series of subspace signals between Lacuta's and the Borg ship uh, that's how they're, um, they're controlling him and then there's a bit from data dialogue and it says it's not just a matter of control doctor and then this is in bold so this must refer to why they've got O'Brien the signals are interactive across subspace domain similar to that of our transporter beam or the hypothesis that these frequencies form the basis of Borg collective consciousness so that's the whole reason it's like yep there you go there's a bit of techno babble to reason why we've gone for O'Brien rather than have Geordie in there which I think is cool and Jamie has somehow stumbled across the homing beacon for, <laughs> we just um, mentioned, brothers yeah. again it, that's a weird thing it is an order but it kind of isn't so I'm assuming you want me to read this as well but yeah sure sure war one yeah that's alright yeah did I have it on here is it one of your main ones yes I do yeah in my working out the second battle for brothers a scene 37 page 35 so I was incorporating a homing device into your sublogic controller and they say how about homing tracker, automatic located program, homing routine, encoded homing circuit, return override, return activator, recall program, auto return tracker. I'm so glad they went for what they did. Homing beacon. Homing, yeah, homing beacon, homing device. Yeah, yeah, I, was yeah just I went short. Went I went short. short. I, I knew long time. This was going to be a long episode and I'm not... I'm not doing too long things and if I do know what I want to talk about 
So that's the next one. Again, just one page. And I thought it was really interesting. So to Lee Sheldon from Mike and Rick. Subject, planetary evacuation scenario. Date 6th of September 1990. So Lee, here's our speculation staff fleets attempting the evacuation of a planetary population. Our assumptions. One, the total evacuation capacity of the Galaxy Class Enterprise is 15,000 Class M environment compatible humanoids. Two, maximum utilisation of all six personnel transporters, along with the use of cargo transporters in quantum resolution mode, might yield a total evac of about 1,000 persons per hour from a planetary service to the ship. Um, use, I'm just going to say use instead of utilisation. Use of all shut, uh, operational... You just said it, though. I did. Use of all operational shuttlecraft aboard the Enterprise would yield about 250 additional people per hour to the ship. Based on the above three items, it would take about 10 hours to bring 15,000 people up to the Enterprise. Um, assuming the planet is being evacuated in five, is, is five light years from uh, destination planet, and further assuming that the ship will travel at slightly better than warp nine, we can assume a round trip of about 48 hours. Um, adding 10 hours for loading and offloading the refugees, so 20 hours altogether, would yield a time of approximately 68 hours for 15,000 people. This reduces to a figure uh, of approximately 220, 220 persons per hour. Starfleet has only about five Galaxy class starships in existence. Um, it presumably has lo- Starfleet presumably has larger numbers of smaller, more specialised starships which might be pressed into service in a pinch. Assuming the availability of one other Galaxy class vessel and a significant number of smaller ships, we might guess at a total evac capacity of, say, 2,000 persons per hour, so nearly 10 times the capacity of Enterprise alone. Given a planetary population of 4 billion people, evacuation to another planet would take approximately 200,000 hours? Or 228 years? Two million. Two million hours or 228 years. As Melinda points out, if the population has any children, the situation can only get worse. On the other hand, if they are totally restrained, the problem may resolve itself, assuming they have a lifetime of under 228 years. So, yeah, I just, just a really interesting kind of scenario of planetary evacuation. Well, it got me wondering when this was in timeline of production. It seems as though it may have been in light of um, Ensigns of Command because that's the last time they were trying to do yeah oh yeah yeah because they had the whole problem with the shell act didn't they went off the planet at a certain amount of time and it and wasn't that was released on the 10th of February 89 oh, okay so they may have gone to that and gone oh actually we need some notes on future if we ever need it so I thought that was quite an interesting thing to kind of go, oh, okay. That might have been your response to your next one. Ah, you picked a long one. Yeah, this one's an interesting <laughs> one. From Mike and Rick to Ron Moore, uh, dated 20th September 1990. Is what? Data's Day Laundry List. Yeah. So this one is a series, and what I put in my notes. Three pages on Data's Day episode shot wish list. So it's shots that the that they wanted to get to show day-to-day life on the Enterprise. Hmm. Uh, the coffee dispenser food replaced on the bridge. Perhaps when someone comes on shift on the bridge, we might see someone getting a cup of coffee and sipping on it. Uh, oh, there you go. There is a door on the bridge 
just four of the observation lounge door, which presumably leads to the bridgehead that we were talking about earlier. Hmm. Um, we might follow one of one or more crew members on their way from their quarters to their juice shift. Is there a rush hour jam or turbulent usage? Maybe a bunch of folks who tend to meet at one. Uh, at the same time each day catch turbolift down to engineering they might chat about their social life perhaps speculate about medical division chance of winning the handball tournament tomorrow night so it's them just that they're going oh how many of these can we get oh this, oh, this is the whole reason why I tried to want to do this joggers maybe Geordie jogs around the perimeter day 8 every day before he starts work I love to see Geordie in joggers <laughs> What do our people do during meal breaks while on duty? Do they do they go to send forward? Do they eat on the bridge or in engineering? I know I know what Data does with his day. Tries to see if he can make work as being as luxurious as his own. Off duty clothing, even if we never see the big baseball game or the sympathy performance, we might see people returning from these things properly tired and all excited for what they saw. It's just three pages of them going. That would be cool. It's a wish list. Them going, that's what I'd love to see. I'd love to see A, B, C. And it's three pages of everything. And we, I don't think we see much much of it, but it's cool. And I'm just touching the surface of that one, as you could see, Jamie. So the next one of mine is another technical commentary on Half a Life. Um, so this one is mainly focused on basically what Timerson is basically investigating, the whole thing with um, where is it? The sun dying. The sun dying, yeah. So. It's all gone out your head, isn't it? Yeah. So. <laughs> anyway, there you go. So the next one, <laughs> that's fine, I'll read a little bit of it. Um, <clears throat> you are regretting picking all the long ones, aren't you? Yeah, some of them. So <laughs> I'll, again, I'll just read a bit. So... Uh, so this is to can I just ask are you relieved you're not doing the additional stuff that you chose yes I'm very relieved wouldn't that be even longer probably yeah yeah Um, so to (laughs) Michael Pedder from Mike and Rick 26th of February 1991 so prefacing we're suggesting there be a clearer explanation of the stars problem what we're going to do to get it going again we're not suggesting a treatise on nuclear physics but we should give our audience a clear idea of what Timerson wants to do so again, they go into this whole bloody techno babble stuff about what they're exactly going to do and all that kind of stuff, which I really can't be bothered to go into. So, but it is interesting seeing how kind of in depth they go and how they're going to get around the problem. But again, it's it's kind of techno babble, so um, yeah. But I love the pen written notes. Oh, at the end of it. Yeah. There's no known method Controlled. of... Controlled. Homo... Homo... Yeah, is it? Homo... Homogenity? I don't know what that means. H-O-M-O-G-E-N-E-R-T-Y. No idea what that means. But, yeah, just interesting. Yeah. Next one. <laughs> Oh, yay, 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 yay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Actually, I think the next few are yours. Thank God for that. (laughs) Another one I love. So, from Mike and Rick to Drummore again. Subject, Starships and Redemption Part 2, dated 4th of June, 1991. And 
it's three pages listing all the Starfleet vessels seen or referenced in Star Trek Next Generation for the episode. And what's quite cool is that there is an awful lot of talk about everything. So I, I've mentioned that there's a list of things. And that's the last one where they've literally gone through and listed everything ever seen in the series so far. Well, Starships and that. This one that I showed you before. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's a full... Well, these days, it's a table full of everything. So A to Z of everything that's appeared in the show and its status, whether it's been destroyed or it's still around or whatever. And then before it, it's got stuff like... So I'll give you... Um, some notes on Starfleet at this point. The murder at Wolf 359 in Best of Both Worlds Part 2 was composed of full starships, but it seems reasonable to assume that this was not all, or even not most, of the Starfleet. One might reasonably assume that these were all the starships within range of the solar system at the time. It takes about four days to cross the sector, 20 light years at Wolf 9.2, and the Federation is a heck of, heck of a lot bigger than one sector. Um, attached to their list of TNG starships, some of the unfamiliar ships were models that we put together for the graveyard scene in Beth Vauquois Part 2. Note that we're trying to suggest that ships we've only ever talked about once include many different designs we haven't seen much of yet. We hope that the Starfleet is composed of many nifty designs besides the Starfleet, uh, besides the note, the very few we've been able to show in the in our series. Also, no a deliberate attempt to draw ship names and classes from a fairly wide range of cultural sources beyond American and British naval ships. Also attached to a ship list from Star Trek 6. Gene has indicated that there were originally six galaxy class starships in existence. Yamato was destroyed in contagion, leaving five remaining. From the some names you can see the end of this memo. Is it the Yamamoto or Yam Yamato? Yamamoto, it's the name. Yamamoto? Yamamoto. Yamamoto, yeah, quite uh, Rick and I assume that components for as many as six other Galaxy class starships would be either built or in the process of being fabricated. How fast or whether these can be made operational is, of course, up to you. In fact, Southfleet might even prefer to concentrate its rebuilding efforts on smaller ships and the theory that it might be more efficient to use of its shipbuilding capacity. Now, I did a bit more work, homework for this, and I worked out what the actual list of names were. So you had, for the, all the galaxies, so you had the Enterprise, the Prototype, which is the USS Galaxy, the Odyssey, which you later see in um, Deep Space Nine, the Venture, which I think you also see in Deep Space Nine, Yamato, which got destroyed, and a Magellan. I know there's a USS Challenger, but I kind of feel like that's from an alternate mm. timeline and doesn't, doesn't exist. Care. You know, Odyssey, wasn't that um, the Jim Hadar episode? Season two? Yeah, I said it, yeah. yeah. Uh, no, no, I want to read this. Um, the Galaxy-class starship is, of course, the biggest and best in the fleet. Nebula-class is a contemporary of the galaxy, and it would be reasonable to assume that Starfleet would actually build more of these than of the Galaxy-class, simply because these are smaller and cheaper. It would also be really neat if we could establish at least one other new ship and a new ship class in addition to these um names of ships or classes we would love to see challenger if it doesn't get blown up (laughs) which is uh, sad again endeavor another shuttle 
Hukkalia, Hawaiian for Star of Gladness, Darwin, Houston. Cosmel. Well, you, last time I showed you this, you loved Houston because of Dan, didn't you? Houston, yeah. Uh, Cosmel, John F. Kennedy, Zeus, Kitty Hawk, where man learned to fly. Uh, the Wright brothers, Jamie. Yeah. Did you know that already? Yeah. 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 No, I'm quite certain with you, Jamie. John Lennon, 20th century musician, Apollo, Musicia, Greek the wind. Orion the Hunter, Cygnus, Aurora the Northern Knights, also one of the original Project Mercury spacecraft, Janna, Goddess of the Moon, Aquai, oh, oh, I don't know how to say uh, that. Uh, I think that got used in Discovery. It's the crash possible ship but they found oh yeah uh, so that's their, their northern California Indian tribe Polaris Northern Star Tom Corbett's spaceship Zodiac Discovery this is, yeah. Discovery and Magellan so I love that because it's a bit like how interesting that they did get used but not for a long 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 while me again yes I'm glad actually the next couple of yours which is Lovely. Then we'll come back to me again. Now, this is another interesting tidbit from um, a memo dated July 17th, 1991 from Michael Peller ahead of Season 5 on what I called a casual writer's guide memo. To all writers coming into pitch, a few do's and uh, do needs and don't needs as of this day. <laughs> We're sorely lacking good simple science fiction promises along the lines of the host Beverly falls in love with an in- intellectual parasite that uh, changes bodies or the empty grey Barclay suddenly gifted with extraordinary intelligence when you one get Wesley guest star starring sorry one might take place at the academy Wesley's been at Starfleet Academy since early last season which ended up being um, First Duty um, First Duty yeah thank you Uh, we're looking for a story which will examine the issue of homosexual relationships in the 24th century that would be the outcasts would it be that the outcast? Would it be uh, that it's going to season five, so I think so. Uh, we need a Q show. Vash will not be with him when he returns. Still don't have an environmental premise that excites us. Force of nature, which will be season seven. Um, want to do a show on literacy this season. I love this. Don't bring in any more Klingon Romulan shows. No more war stories. We have all the war stories we need. <laughs> Do not pitch sequels to past stories, including stories which surprise Jack Crusher. Well, I, I have spoken. <laughs> I just, is that, is that tone I just think of that's it, it? It's just like, not this, not that. We'd like that, but not this. What? And Why? it's like you say, it's just the, the tidbits where it's a bit yeah. like, well, that led to that thing, that led yeah. to that thing, and that led to that so thing. Why didn't he want some of these? Is it because they'd overdone it or... I think so. Just a variation. Because yeah. I... I think there's a feeling of re- retreading old ground. You want to do something new. Next one. I believe it's me again. Yeah. <laughs> oh, we're getting there. We're almost... I'm on 16, so I've got another uh, about three to go. I'm not sure about me because my stupid phone keeps locking. Uh, so this one is to Carla Mason from Makakuda. Uh, Starlog Star Trek technical manual pages. Hang on a minute. Oh, I had this on one of my editions. Uh, hang on, I just need to... Ah, I think it's... God, I can't read that. Uh, I've got three more after this one. 
because this is because like, I have noted down as memos between the production team and Starlog magazine, and there's one between them and the Franklin Mint to talk about their uh, Stargazer model. Cool. All right. So the next one. Let's talk. Talk. <laughs> I'm joking. I'm joking. Um. So, <laughs> sheet one. Aww. I seem to recall a specific story point in which Mrs. Troy expressed admiration for Picard's legs while wearing a dress uniform. I think, therefore, that the reference to the fitted slacks may be inaccurate and should be checked against episode videotapes. Um, I just love that whole... I remember... Did she? Did she? Ever? Yeah. 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 It just, I just made me chuckle because of how, how Picard, uncomfortable Picard felt around that because I know I'm always making excuses to... <laughs> Not be in her company. Um, sheet five. Uh, I'm not sure, but I think uh, so. This is about the drawing of a miniskirt scant scant uniform. I'm not sure, but I think this version has fallen into disuse since Bill Feast left the show. I wouldn't be surprised if it hadn't been used since season two. Um, if it is indeed no longer used, I suppose they could simply label it as a variant that's been taken out of service. I'm also. I also am not. Therefore, not sure if a version of this costume was ever made with a high third season column modification. Um, chart of rank pins. Uh, I'm not really that familiar with our rank system, but I don't recall that we've ever established a Commodore in TNG. On the other hand, we've already def- we've definitely established various animals, and there these should put- probably be included in the chart. So, yeah, it's just about different things like floor plan, a ten forward in sick bay, a transporter room, observation lounge. Yeah, just different little tidbits, really. Um, I thought it was interesting, which is why I noted it down, but yeah. in some ways it's, it is them retreading our ground because it is them effectively using the technical manual in yeah. in the magazine. So they've just got a series of diagrams gone, there you go, That that's what you're after. So this next one for me again, this is more only a page. Uh, so this is to Michael Piller from Mike and Rick. Uh, the subject is involved. Um, yeah, yeah, that's what I had written down earlier. What? As a, a well, my edition, yeah. Yeah. So that's cool. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm good. Because uh, again, this works into Force of Nature. Yeah. So um, mm. this is Environmental Story Tech Ideas, date of 21st of November, 1991. So it, it basically goes into what the plot would be in Force of Nature. I'll read a little bit out. Um, so it talks about the story could, could open with the Enterprise travelling at high speed through some more populated part of the galaxy. The opening log might have Picard express regret they can't stop at some planet there. Um, you didn't indicate what the specific problem caused by the warp drive, but we assume it is a pretty bad one, preferably with nasty implications to the nearby planets as well as the Enterprise itself. Later we discover the problem, whatever it is, is caused by the fact that warp drive distorts the fabric of uh, of the time, so the space continuum. Um, the upshot is that this is a serious problem for our starfaring civilization. This incident is merely a taste of bad things to come. What power starships are central to the Federation of creating this nasty effect, whatever it is. Um, and since more and more starships are being built every day, the problem will only get worse. Even more, such devices as subspace radio, artificial gravity fields, and even deflectors are con- contributing to this time space distortion. For story purpose, the solution should not be easy because you want to show that sacrifices must be made to protect our environment, yet it cannot comp- com- uh, compromise our Star Trek format. 
So one possible answer might go like this, where identify the areas of known space which have a lot of starship traffic and impose a speed limit. So, yeah. Yeah, so Force of Nature was actually released 15th of November 1993. So, so well ahead of, yeah. of this memo, which is again which is why I think it was interesting to both of us. Because yeah. I, so I did notice it down, it just I had too many before we got going. Plus, I don't know how much you enjoy that episode, particularly with the uh, the sister um, being I can really crazy. Uh, no, it's the way. Oh, we're gonna create the problem that we're trying to avoid. But oh. Don't worry about that. Didn't you say it's like to the extreme she kind of goes to to prove a point? Well, I don't want this thing to happen, but oops, I'm gonna overload this in. It's all fact she's on it when you can remote control the ship and still survive. But again, it's it's what I said in this. Um, Caesar reviewer, it's a bit like then it doesn't have the same impact. Yeah, I think we're down to our last two now for each of us. Well, I really am going to cheat with this one because all like all this one is is two pages de- detailing the character's biographical information seen in conundrum. That, that's all it is. It's what you see on screen in Elcast. So it's nice and simple. There's no nothing more I can really add to it. It's that's just fun. what you see on screen. I just thought it was cool seeing it written in a memo. I suppose because it's like revised like. 17th of January 1992, but it's just, just a nice tidbit. There's not much more I want to say to it. That's fine. It's just nice. Last, your last one, and it's two of mine. No. Uh, no. One more. All good things. You know. Is that there? Is it bookmarked or not? Yeah. Oh, okay, well, I guess I'm. Okay, so it's two more for you. Somewhere. Um. A two-page memo working out the mechanics behind the wrong warp drive. Artificial quantum singularity for the face of enemy episode or the next phase. Um, 25th February 1992 for a Mike to Rommel. Uh As we've discussed, I'd really much like to have Rommel and warp drive technology based on somewhat different principles than those of our own Federation of, uh, Starfleet, although they would follow the same physical laws. It would be nice if they, being an alien culture, found different implementation of this system. Items in boldface are suggested terminology. Pathological expressions follow our enterprise equivalents. Oh god, this is fun. Motive power. A captive quantum singularity matter-antimatter reaction system is held suspended in an inverted graviton field, containment field. Um... How it works, a measured amount of helium, hydrogen or deuterium is injected into the singularity modular reaction chamber. Once inside of the gravitation containment field, the helium is quickly absorbed into the containment field, into the singularity, releasing a tremendous amounts of high-energy X-rays and gamma radiation, drive plasma. This reaction is then trapped from the singularity and focused into the subspace resonator, dilithium crystals chamber. I just loved it because way back when at the start of podcasting I did a, a description of trying to work trying to tell Phil and Jamie about how Warp Drive works oh wasn't that the Star Trek Trivia episode that we did I think we did release that one ages ago yeah, yeah. season one it's like 2014-ish or something 2015 hmm. and I think that was quite cool just an, like them trying to work out the mechanics of a new form of Warp Drive like how does this all work and it's just three, pa- uh, yeah, two pages working out how they're going to make the whole thing work. 
Yeah, I'm good. Because it's yeah. all technically babble, isn't it? Okay, so I've got. So I think mine's the next two and your last one. So this one, I'll just. I'm not going to really go into detail, it's just a diagram. But basically, um, it's a diagram about of the human brain and about the five senses of consciousness. I just thought it was a really, really interesting thing. So it talks about different areas of the brain, um, and then it's like a. Um, well, what episode was it for? Because I'm sure that we worked with the memos that were with it. Um, with these ones, Jeremy. Uh, I don't know actually. See, this one's twenty second of June, nineteen ninety two. But I don't think this one actually had a date on it or anything like that. Don't. Oh. Work into that. Schisms, yeah. Oh, I should probably put two pages on him. Does, yeah, it works into those sort schisms. of things. Always link into something. Yeah, that's... but I think it's that whole thing of, you know, when the aliens kind of, because they never, they never, we never found out they're like, the species of aliens, just unknown aliens. You kind of do in SEO, but again, that's not canon. But it is not. Yeah, but yeah, it just it talks about kind of them doing it. All works. Yeah. So. It's a medical diagram, effectively. Yeah, so I thought that was pretty cool. So, uh, right, my last one, thankfully, is a nice short, just a few pages, and it's literally sketches. That's it. But the protostar Super Jovian sketches. Right. Yeah. So basically, <laughs> um, whatever the heck this is, I just found it interesting. Yes, I know. I probably should have. Yeah. Um, so basically. It talks about um, where the Super Jovian... Why am I doing your research for, for you, Jamie? Jamie? I don't know. Why are you doing it, so? I think I know when that's for as well. <laughs> yeah, I didn't really think to put down what episodes they're for, at least with some of these. But, um, it's really, also... Jamie? I didn't oh, notice. It's, yeah. Of course you didn't. It's, so it basically talks about where a Super Jovian can come from like, almost anywhere, not just the path shown. Um... So then it talks about kind of the final moments when they kind of interact and becoming one object. And it's a whole thing, but yeah, that's that's basically my last one. It kind of a bit anticlimactic, but that's what I picked. I find it. Would be season seven, wouldn't it? For some reason, I thought it might be. Um, I'll go back. For some reason, my mind thought it was. Um, Shipping a bottle, but that doesn't make much sense. I don't know what one it's for. It's for something, but it was interesting nonetheless. So, so have you got one more? Face of the enemy? Could it be that one? No. What's before it, Jamie? Um, Aquiel. So what's between Aquiel? There's nothing. I don't. I'm not sure what one that is. Then I really don't know. Well, maybe you guys. You guys are listening and know what on earth we're talking about. If you've got this binder and know the page, then maybe you could. It, yes. I think I'm right still. You think it's? I think it is. Shipping a boat. Think about it. Aquiel is all the way up there. Yeah. So it is, like I say, it's so in maybe, a certain order, but it kind of goes a bit kooky sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like it's shipping a bottle. Probably. 
It's the only thing that really fits the mind. So what's your last one? Oh yeah, I'll say it. So I'll say yours. Didn't you know what it is. I showed it last time. And the last one for this. It's actually fairly fitting, actually. This big long episode. Technical commentary on. Three pages work on the technobabble uh, for all good things. Um, same as the everything else we've spoken about, but it's the last bit that I think we both like. I think Jamie liked it as well when I showed him before. And it's them trying to work out all the bits about um, the acids in old Earth, isn't it? And yeah. And it's them getting very, very confused. And <laughs> them just going, yeah, just go with that. Um, so Michael Piller, Jerry, I think it's actually Rick Sternback getting very confused. Michael Piller, Jerry Taylor, Ron Moore, Brandon Roger. And it's them talking about uh, the peptides and the amino acids, isn't it? Hmm. And there's a bit of cross there, and it's like scene 96, page 98. It's cu- and it says, suggest two peptides are about to combine and form the first amino acid. Um, amino acids are about to combine and form the first protein. Here's a hierarchy. And there's a thing next to it, next line down. Water-soluble organism clones equals amino acids equals polypeptides equals proteins. And Rick Sandbeck's gone okay. <laughs> um, about 20 different amino acids in different proportions go into making proteins, not the other way around. Hughes equations of two different things getting closer, closer should be fixed as well. Rick Sternberg just goes jeepers even I'm confused okay the sequence is uh, right but the suggested dialogue was not not try two amino acids are about to combine and form the first protein I just love it I just love that first line of jeepers even I'm confused okay here's this and that's what ended up in the episode I just love that because it it does just summarise seven years of these small notes that actually evolved into actual dialogue or plot points you know a growing topic a growing subjects where they just went you know what I don't get <laughs> this is a final discussion is that I don't get this that's as simple as I can make it let's go with that guys we're like we're overcomplicating. Otherwise, let's just go for that phrase. Well, reminds me of me it. most of the time. I ever think things like, "Yeah, don't you just do this or say that." And yeah. Well, like, or like the like the like the final episode. Well, there is another bit scene, isn't there? Right then, that I was quite like, and it says the final meeting, where it's like a discussion, fun scene written by the production team, where they're just having a kind of conversation, which is kind of. That's seven years of craziness, like <laughs> just like trying to record this episode. <laughs> now we've we've done well. I think we've actually not even hit two hours yet, so I'm kind of glad we did this in one. Yeah, um, we're gonna sleep for a hundred years now. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> you have no idea how big it is, and. Yeah. Doing it twice over. Yeah, is we've not effectively fun. we take about almost four hours. So yeah. But we hope you guys have enjoyed this episode. Yeah, because um, this is one one off thing. 
to kind of celebrate the end of next gen because we still got obviously our overall series review yeah. Um, which again we're not sure might be one might be two episodes I think we'll just maybe play it by ear see how things go um, but this will be one episode um, which I, I think effectively was probably still within reasonable length anyway yeah as I said before not as long as we thought mm. and so um, estimated I mean if we'd added the additional stuff we picked it probably would have maybe another 20 and 30 minutes maybe but um are you still content? I am very content. I'm very happy. I'm, don't know I enjoyed doing this episode, but I'm kind of glad it's over. <laughs> Just because we spent a long time trying to get it done. But yeah, I'm content as well. So we hope you guys have enjoyed listening. Um, that's it. Yeah, we'll be back later in the month because this, this is a bit of a bumper year for, for, for it. Because I say, we're end of next gen season reviews. That binder was only going to be a one-time thing, so yeah. we want to do that in style and properly, even if it has taken too long, far longer than we ever predicted. Mm. Again, partly my fault. Probably all my fault, if I'm honest, because yeah, of pressing is. wrong buttons. Yeah, but that's um, fine. Honestly, these three things happen. Three hours ago? We're about that. Almost four hours ago, yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, we're going to do series review and then that will be next gen done, done. close the door on it and <laughs> we start back at square one with my favourite Trek series ever Deep Space De- Nine De- seven seasons De- 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 what, what I mean this is yonks and yonks in the future but what me and Simon we don't know what Why we've got are you to talking about? no but yes nine's next yes nine's next so yeah that's Which it. is going to be interesting considering how we dealt with it before. And then we'll do Seven Years of Voyager. No, I'm joking. We'll probably go for something shorter after that one. One way, so. Yeah, future Jamie and Simon can figure that one out. Yeah. But yeah, we'll end it there. Yeah. Uh, hope you guys enjoyed listening. Yeah, and next up, series review. And then we're having a holiday. Yes, then we're having a break. Yeah, hiatus. Yeah. Well, we always say that and it's not. Well, it will be, definitely, because I said work's going to be busy enough where I'm working. It's going to get very busy, so I'm Yeah, trying. but it's always over like two weeks, then we have to start work on September. True. Sorry. Yeah, we hope you enjoyed that rambling, and yeah, um, we'll talk to you again soon. Bye. Bye.